I'm going to use the body as our trial balloon, so to say. So what's the first thing? Purpose. If we have any kind of bodily action, we should reflect upon the purpose for it. And we will see that when we do that, that we use our body often quite without any thought behind it, an automatic reaction that could be either a reaction to discomfort or it can be a reaction to restlessness. It can also be uh, um, completely impulsive and instinctive because we're used to it, habitual, in other words. So we have restlessness, we have habits, we have discomfort, and sometimes we also use bodily actions for self-expression. In some cases, the purpose for that self-expression is useful, in other cases it's not. Now, if we actually pay attention in this manner, we will find that our bodily actions quieten down, because we will find quite a number of them that are useless, that have no purpose. And when they do, unless we forget again, then of course we have to start again, when they do quieten down, it helps the mind to quieten down. Because obviously that quietening down of the bodily action has started in the mind. The body can't quieten down unless we want to in the mind. We have that intention. So we have another support system for meditation to become calm, for our whole inner being to be calm without anxiety and without restlessness and without trying to gain results. The mind has all these habits and the body has others which are based on the same purposes. But when we see them for what they are, that they have no real purpose, the quietening down process is very helpful. It has another beneficial result. We don't expend quite as much energy, so we have some left over for something really important. People who are, we might know people who are very restless in their bodily action. They lose their energy very quickly. There are exaggerated cases of that. Most people are sort of middling sometimes this way, sometimes that way. So we have that benefit already to start out with, and we have another benefit. Because there isn't that much action, that much movement, we can actually be mindful of the movements that are left over, 
and being really mindful of them keeps the mind in order we must become aware and I'm saying must quite on purpose that mindfulness is our only defense system in daily living against all negative thoughts and emotions there is no other because mindfulness brings us to understand that we have them but if we actually have mindfulness before we have them we don't even get them so mindfulness is that one-pointed attention and if we have too many movements if we have too much activity obviously we lose mindfulness everybody does there's no way out of that so except the enlightenment but if we slow down and get less movements which have no purpose it's much easier to remain mindful the movements which are useful do not necessarily have to be performed in slow motion that's only in the meditation practice of walking meditation I have met up in these many years of teaching with meditators who now thought after hearing about mindfulness that they have to live their life in slow motion not only does it look very peculiar they can't get anything done so life becomes even worse than it was before it's got nothing to do with slow motion if it had anything to do with that the Buddha would have mentioned it it's got to do something with purpose what am I doing it for? is there a purpose to it? okay there is well let me do it and let me do it with bare attention now this is the translation of mindfulness which I like best because we can choose our translations there are so many possibilities and there's really nobody to tell us that we're totally wrong in the translation because nobody speaks Pali bare attention bare without any encumbrances really being there so that's mindfulness now if we add to that our clear comprehension and learn to use clear comprehension in the Buddhist way then we have that first step of purpose obviously it has another great benefit namely it will protect us from using our body in a harmful way we won't squash a mosquito and kill it thoughtlessly and because we are watching what we're doing and we won't do any harm to anything without paying attention and then later maybe being sorry for it our body will be used in an easy way means that we can flow because we watch what we're doing and we are not likely to do anything like taking things that don't belong to us anything that is really harmful so we have that benefit also when we are mindful with clear comprehension this has to become a habit because we have the opposite habit 
Now, habits have, can only be counteracted by other habits. Habits are very strong. And very often, we don't even know we've got them. Because they are habits. And if we then inaugurate a new habit, of course it has a hard time to stand up against the old one. The old one is ingrained. The old one is embedded. It's been there all the time. It thinks it's the owner. So it's sitting there on its throne and doesn't want the new habit to usurp that that throne. So it's not so easy to have that new habit established. We will find that the old one is constantly in an attack against it. The only thing that we can use in order to make the new habit, the new owner, is willpower. There is nothing else. Now, willpower does not mean getting tense and telling oneself, I must, and if I can't, I'm a terrible person. It just means to arouse determination again and again. That's all. Willpower, the concentration of willpower, is one of the 37 factors of enlightenment. It means gaining power (coughs) over one's useless habits and substituting them with useful ones. It really means gaining power over oneself. Naturally, that's not easy. Just because one can explain it so that everybody can understand it doesn't mean that it's an easy thing to do. In fact, it's quite difficult. But it has great benefits, which I've already enumerated, and it has one more, like all of these have have that same benefit. It has a feeling of satisfaction that one has made the effort. One feels contented with one's own effort. Letting oneself really go and indulging does not usually uh, bring about a feeling of satisfaction with oneself. One doesn't have to um, blame oneself for it. One can accept it that one has done it, but one doesn't feel very satisfied. On the contrary, one feels very often inclined to make a real effort to counteract the um, indulgence. So here we have that as a constant benefit from all our efforts. Now, having ascertained that the purpose which we have in mind before actually having done anything is correct, then we have the next step to think about. Now, if I want to accomplish a certain purpose, are the means which I have in mind actually suitable? Are they the best means available to me? Now, obviously, that's going to slow us down, but then what's the hurry? Where are we going? 
most of the time that people spend is wasted on discursive thinking and equally discursive acting because we can only do what we think we can never do something we haven't thought of before so we waste a lot of time with both so if we then retrace our steps and instead of impulsively acting we first consider it certainly takes longer but discursiveness is not part of it it's one-pointedness now we have to keep something else in mind with both of these obviously the second step are the means and the first one is the end there is no end that can justify wrong means no end whatsoever the end never justifies the means the means and the end both have to be within that what the Buddha teaches now this goes for a real practitioner much much further than just keeping the precepts I like to take the word just away from that than keeping the precepts because it's not just keeping the precepts they're not that easy and they're extremely important so just take that word out of your mind but there's more to it than that when we actually look at clear comprehension we are looking at gaining insight into who we really are so obviously the first thing as far as purpose and means are concerned they have to comply with the five precepts there's no getting away from that they can't be outside of those purpose and means but the next thing that has to be considered and mind you that takes a while to get that habit is to see whether the purpose we have in mind is actually something that will shed more light on impermanence, dukkha or non-self and then we'll see that a lot of the stuff we do is totally unnecessary obviously as far as making a living is concerned and we do have to spend time on that unless we've inherited a lot of money there was a f- the five precepts come into play that's the first thing but anything other than that in other words the time we spend outside of trying to make enough money to live on those three characteristics come into play and that's what clear comprehension is all about this is a very important point I can't emphasize it enough I'll probably emphasize it again because what it means is that we're keeping the Dhamma in mind that we're not just sitting with crossed leg on a little pillow trying to overcome any physical discomfort and trying to get calm which is very nice there's nothing wrong with that but that's not Dhamma that's a means that's suitable 
that wholesome means, but it isn't Dhamma yet. Dhamma is us completely, from head to toe, from heart to mind, from morning to night. That's Dhamma. So, if we remember as much as we can, and I'm not trying to say that it will be possible for us to remember from morning to night. I'm only putting that out as an ideal. That we are actually wanting to and are here for gaining spiritual insight and spiritual growth. Then, direction of mind will again and again veer towards seeing impermanence seeing non-satisfactoriness in the sense of not having total harmony, total peacefulness, and seeing the emptiness of phenomena, whichever one of the three we have chosen. Now, every real Dhamma practitioner needs to choose one of those three, and I've already suggested to you that impermanence is the one that is the easiest I don't like the word easy it gives a wrong impression as if it were easy it's the one that one that the mind has the least objection to obviously we have the habit of mind to make things permanent to see ourselves as a solid entity to try to make our houses, our relationships, our bank accounts as permanent as possible. And if that doesn't work, we feel really cheated by life. We're really having a rough time. And keep forgetting that there isn't anything that's permanent. And then also, of course, we like to make our bodies permanent, which is, of course, also a a myth, not possible. Our medical profession tries to support that myth, which is also quite ridiculous. And of course, there are a few young ones that have, that don't do that anymore, but most of them do. That's what they learn. So instead of living with that myth, which is insupportable through fact, we need to remember again and again in our daily lives that there isn't anything that's permanent and the first thing that will do for us the first benefit will stop clinging will stop hanging on will stop collecting will stop wanting because there's nothing there that we can keep it's all moving flux and that does not bring about a sense of loss. It brings about a sense of gain, gain of peace of mind. The first thing that one can see when one's really concerned with this, that if it's all moving and changing, so what's there to worry about? Do the best one can and that's it. So keeping that in mind means that we're keeping the Dhamma in mind. And keeping the Dhamma in mind means that we're actually practitioners. Because there are many, many people nowadays, interestingly enough, who do sit on pillows, 
have never actually had any contact with the Buddha's teaching, which is quite all right, nothing wrong with that. Please don't misunderstand me. But sitting on little pillows is all they do. They don't keep the Dhamma in mind. And naturally, it does have some benefit, but it is not a total spiritual practice. It just has some benefit, which is fine. The options are open for everybody. We can choose what we like. There is no coercion ever in the Buddha's teaching. He doesn't say you can't go and meditate unless you take the Dhamma in mind all day. He never says anything like that. He just says, it's better if you were to do this. It brings more benefit if, if you don't want to. Options are ours. That's why karma is not destiny. We have constant choices. Every single moment. And we make them according to our own understanding. Which is fine. So, looking at the Buddha's option to keep Dhamma in mind, which means that we are constantly going towards greater spiritual understanding within, greater growth, letting go more. We then know that the purpose which we have in mind has to be connected with some helpfulness on the way to having Dhamma grow within us. Which means that if we have now decided we want to go to a a funny movie and getting into the car and going there is a suitable means of going there, we might now discuss with ourselves whether that funny movie is actually going to make us grow in the understanding of impermanence, dukkha and non-self. If we think it will, well, maybe we'll get in the car. And if we think it won't, maybe we'll stay home. Everybody's choice is theirs. The same applies to all the actions we take. Now, it doesn't it does not follow and this is a fear so often expressed and that's why I'm preempting the question doesn't mean you can't ask it on top of it it's perfectly all right it doesn't mean there's no joy on the contrary there's far more because this funny movie lasts one and a half hours two hours let's say two hours right and then one chuckles here and one chuckles there It's not funny all the time. And then one comes home, and what has changed? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just home after having seen a funny movie, that's all. Nothing has changed. Been two hours in which one has maybe chuckled 55 times or 35 times or whatever. That's all. But maybe, just maybe, one has actually made that connection to the Dhamma and looked at it and seen it for what this movie actually is, nothing but a diversion, a distraction from knowing reality and then maybe coming one day to actually knowing reality about impermanence, there never is any need for distraction or diversion. Because knowing the reality of impermanence means that whatever is happening is just like a movie. It's all going along. 
it's all constantly changing and some of it is a horror movie and you look and you think oh you're terrible and some is funny and some is a love story and some has nice nature in it but it's all just a movie because it's all only happening in thought and the screen behind it which is absolutely essential to having that movie is the purity of our own mind that doesn't have to have a movie going we can shut it off when we've learned to and that of course brings us to the point where the diversion of going to the movie house is totally um, absurd because we know already that this whole existence is a movie and if we've been fairly uh, successful at making it a nice movie we should be grateful that's all but anyone who wants to live Dhamma and practice doesn't really want to continue just seeing the movie one day we want to see the screen and have that complete purity and complete transparency brilliance of the screen that is behind all that so purpose and means suitability are they within the Dhamma obviously we're going to forget but maybe once in a while we can remember and see whether our activities can really be geared towards that now eventually if we make this a habit if our life becomes one where Dhamma is the most important thing and Dhamma does means law of nature, law, truth, teaching and Buddha used it as an explanation, as a description of his teaching law, law of nature, truth, teaching it does not mean necessarily that we can only apply the Buddha's great words to our lives there are many masters whose words have been great and true our own discrimination has to tell us when we hear truth and when we don't but as when we are still in the beginning stages of gaining insight it is very helpful to have a pathway step by step where one doesn't have to get off the path to search for another one amongst all the a jungle thicket of possibilities having gained a great and strong and solid foothold on the path and having come out of the jungle thicket of views and opinions into the open air one may see other pathways which are going up the same mountain and visit there too and enjoy the, the realization that they're all going up the same mountain so if we have that understanding that Dhamma is a great priority in our lives then the habit becomes established that whatever we do is going in that direction and once in a while we may just sort of have a holiday not the other way around 
having a holiday from Dhamma all the time and then coming to a course and then remembering there is a pathway the other way around having that direction all the time and just taking a holiday once in a while now having that direction all the time means that if one does anything other than trying to make money to live I mean that's a necessity one has a good look what for now then there is resort the third step it's explained as keeping the meditation subject in mind I like to explain it as keeping mindfulness going you see it's not usually practical in daily life to sit there and watch one's breath or to go into any of the absorptions although it's very helpful when you're sitting in a dentist's waiting room and it's very helpful if you have to wait for the bus a long time and all those things and instead of getting upset about the bus not coming or being afraid of the dentist or uh, worrying about the, the bills that are coming keeping the meditation subject in mind keeping the meditation subject in mind whichever it may be at times when there is nothing else to be done now obviously when one has to telephone somebody answer a letter or um, uh, go shopping it would be foolishness it's not practical but it's very interestingly explained this particular aspect of clear comprehension that there are those who take it with them and don't bring it back that there are those who don't take it with them but bring it back then there are those who take it with them and bring it back and then there are those who don't take it with them and don't bring it back which means that if you leave your house and you go somewhere you actually take with you that remembrance that I will keep my meditation subject in mind any moment that I'm now outside of my house and have nothing else to do like I already said waiting for the bus waiting in the dentist's uh, waiting room um, maybe waiting at the cash out uh, um, at the cashiers in a supermarket when there's a line up um, anytime at all for taking it with you and then losing it somewhere along the line and not coming home with it that's what is meant the other person doesn't remember to take it with them but all of a sudden halfway gone they remember I could actually be meditating here because there's nothing to do at this moment and I'm, all I'm doing is worrying and waiting and fretting and getting frustrated and then they remember and then they bring it back with them then there's the person who bring, takes it and brings it back and then there's one who's forgotten the whole thing doesn't take it and doesn't bring it back just goes off and gets worried about all the difficulties that happen there are many occasions where we do have to wait for someone to come they're, they're not on time or there's uh, ten people in front of us in the line well most people they go from one foot to the next and think oh it's very late now goodness gracious 
and uh, they see, oh, I've already stood here for 10 minutes. It's a dreadful bank. I'm going to change my bank, waiting 10 minutes for this person. Well, it's all totally unnecessary. Watch the breath instead. And if you feel self-conscious about closing your eyes, well, for heaven's sakes, do it with eyes open. doesn't matter. One can keep one's eyes open, point down to the floor with them, with the eyes, direct them towards the floor, and don't, don't focus them on anything in particular. Quite all right. If you're very used to keeping your eyes closed, if you've done it for a long time, nobody cares. Nobody cares, I can guarantee. I've done it many times. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me why I've got my eyes closed. They're all concerned with their own frustrations, why they have to wait so long. They don't care whether anybody else is standing there too. So this is the resort of the meditation subject. But there's more to this than that. There is, again, to keep the mindfulness going. That's also a resort. Now, that's our resort, so to say, for having the mind calm and at ease, both the meditation subject and the mindfulness. And specifically in business uh, activities, when one has a job and has a boss or when one is in business for oneself, there are many situations where the mind can easily get upset. But even at home it can get upset about anything at all. And there are many occasions in daily life when the mind is not quiet, not at ease, when there's anxiety, where there's hoping and worrying, because if that wasn't the case, we would never have any problem getting into the meditative absorptions up to the eighth absorption, because the reason for not getting into is the fact that the mind is constantly having those uh, detrimental states. It's a normal human uh, situation. But the Buddha teaches us to transcend that. And he gives us all the ways and means of doing that. All we have to do is actually latch on to it and finally do it one day. And then we'll see. Then we're going to prove it to ourselves. So the mindfulness which we can keep going means that our mind can be quiet and at ease no matter what happens. We're mindful of, now I'm still going to talk about the physical movements, of which there are so many, but obviously they are not always applicable. Sometimes it has to be the mind content, sometimes it has to be the mind state, and sometimes it has to be the feelings. Those are the three others which I will address a clear comprehension as it pertains to the four elements. For instance, in the walking meditation, and this is um, uh, an important and different way of using the walking meditation, namely to become aware of the four elements as they operate when we walk. When we lift the foot, it's the air element, which is the movement, which actually has predominance at that time. The fire element has also a part in it, 
because there is temperature and there's also the combustion part. Everything that moves has to have some combustion in it. And then as we move forward with the foot, it's still the same two elements, but as we go down, water, heaviness, and earth element when we touch. Now, if we use walking meditation, I would like you to do this. Next time you do walking meditation, in that way, eventually, we will get a grip on the fact that there is really only a process and not an entity. We don't lose a thing when we find out. We gain everything. We gain not something that is tangible, but what we gain is the ease and the flow and the harmony and the lack of disturbance which can never be disturbed again because we'll see ourselves so differently from before that it's not possible to really get in there and touch anything that could hurt. It's a process. There's nothing to be hurt. There are elements working. In the eating, it's the same thing. You could try that out. As you lift the spoon to the mouse, you have the movement of the air element, the wind that moves, wind element. You also have the air feeling of up. As you put the food in the mouth, you've got both fire and earth, because earth is the touch of two solids on, on one another, solidity, you can feel that, and of course there's temperature. And as you uh, chew it, the water element has to get into it. You've got to use saliva. Without it, there's no chewing. So, if you look at that in the way of those elements, then it becomes less personal. And when things become less personal, then that person that's having all these hopes and desires and dislikes and rejections and resistances and worries and fears and tries to hide behind this and that, essentially disappears. Not physically, it's still there, physically, but that emotional, mental makeup disappears. And it's just all happening. And it's happening very nicely. It's just moving along. So, use these four elements. Air, wind, movement, and the feeling of being in the air with a spoon, then touching, is the food inside, is earth and fire, and then the chewing and tasting there's a water element included. And then as you swallow, you can feel again earth element. And as 
that goes down, you will know that the fire element has to be in it, otherwise there won't be any internal combustion. The internal combustion has to take place for the digestion. There has to be water element with it, otherwise the digestion can't take place. And then, of course, there's earth element as it comes out again. That's our eating. Day in and day out. It's quite all right to taste nice. Nothing wrong with that. But nothing other than the elements are happening. And the same with walking. The elements, the four elements. And to see that as a practice in meditation helps one to keep Dhamma in mind, to see the things which are doing, which we're doing, and to see the things which we are trying to attain in life in the light of this, so that uh, more and more we have this understanding of that fluctuating, the flux, fluctuating sensations, fluctuating being that we constantly try to make solid. We are completely in flux all the time with everything. And we look solid because we don't pay attention to the four elements. Now the four elements are mentioned in this particular discourse under the heading of clear comprehension as one of the main aspects of using it for non-delusion. So just now, today, maybe tomorrow until we've talked about something else, do that. In the walking, meditation, in the eating, even in the walking from here to there. The mind is extremely fast. It has no trouble thinking of the elements while we're walking and being aware of that walking aspect as the elements function. This has the mindfulness with clear comprehension together. The walking itself plus the elements. Mindfulness with clear comprehension. Clear? All right. Give you a chance to ask some questions if you like. Come on, Brian. Let's hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I could see some arising in you. Yes. What's the name of the, the uh, The official name, the traditional name, the resort, R-E-S-O-R-T. What we resort to, the resort which means the meditation uh, subject and the mindfulness. That's just a traditional translation of that particular word in Pali. Uh, and all these traditional translations very often need explanations. What else? Particularly how or why or when? Hmm? Yes. Um, 
it, it came to mind that um, when you were talking about the funny movie, that many of us um, don't operate in isolation, and we mostly have either elderly friends or parents that we have to share things with, and often a funny movie is a way of sharing, or it may even be television that you don't particularly want to watch, but it's a way of sharing love and affection with another person. And it can be easy because it seems the right thing to do, maybe to stay at home sometimes and meditate when actually you could be helping somebody <coughs> by sitting and watching a fairly mindless television program with them. Well, the intention of being loving is, of course, a good one. It's within the Dhamma. Um, I question the fact that sitting and watching television with them will be the best way to show them love and compassion. Wouldn't it be nicer to talk to them? Sometimes I'm thinking in particular of my own mother, and um, sometimes just to sit with her and watch television is enough. Is enough. It's actually more because... I'm, I'm wondering whether other people may have the same type of thing. Sometimes by talking to them, uh, in fact, um, you don't have the means of communicating mm. the right way. Mm. Right. Yes, I, I can see that quite uh, well. Uh, the intention is the Dhamma intention. That's the dumber intention. But if you want to go and look at this television because you just want to distract yourself, and that most people do do it before that, and diversion and not having to, um, you know, understand anything in particular, well, then it's, of course, the wrong intention. But if one feels that one needs to know what's going on in the world because it's particularly um, dreadful or something like that, it turns on the news, uh, people usually justify that, that they have to need, they have a need to know. Um, and I have tried that, and it's not true. There was a television set in Melbourne where I was, and I tried it, and I turned it on, and I turned it off after a minute and a half. It um, affects the mind uh, detrimentally. It's not true. There's no need to know. Everybody else knows. If you want to know, you can just ask somebody. So, um, it's, um, you know, the news is usually a justifiable television uh, time, and I have found it not to be so. But what you're describing, yes, yes, certainly. It's very important to show the mother um, that kind of love and attention, yes, absolutely. It, it's a real problem today because I've tried many times to do just what you're talking about because I agree with you completely. I don't have a television set. And I've had the same conversation over and over till my friends think I'm very boring with it. Uh, because I try then to justify my own views, which are, and I really do feel that watching war on television has has much more damaging effect on you than any beneficial effect That's it right. may have by you being more educated by what's going on in the world. But I find that um, really that I'm now reaching a stage where I think it's better to keep quiet about mm. this sort of thing because sure. in fact all you're producing is a version in the people you're mm. talking to anyway and they're yeah. going to take any notice of you. Yeah. Absolutely. 
only here uh, it can be said because um, we are looking at it in a different way but out there it's not uh, it's not good to make people have more aversion than they have already by telling you <coughs> something <coughs> you're quite right this also creates a kind of problem when you can see something like watching television I read that and things like this and you try to point it out and uh, then perhaps you feel in yourself well why can't they see it that's a difficult one too, isn't it? Yes. Um, the Buddhist um, explanation of this is, goes like this: um, that one should always, one should only go teach or speak along those lines when asked. No, never volunteer. Now, obviously, coming to a meditation course, that question has already, has already been implied, I want to know so, fine but somebody comes to visit and says hello you know, unless the question is asked, nothing and this is how he operated himself uh, as I, I think I mentioned already that many of his discourses are answers to questions and very often he turns the question around because the question was <coughs> badly put and answers the way he wants to answer and that has to be done but never uh, just, you know buttonholing anybody and say well look, you know uh, don't you think that would be much better if you were to meditate instead of wa- watch television mm-hmm. not like that it's funny because at work we have meetings very often and I stand up and my opinions aren't particularly popular ones policy in broadcasting at the moment. And I can feel people saying, and yet I feel I have to stand up and say it. Mm. Uh, and it's a very funny sort of situation. Mm. Yes, the Buddha has a formula for that too. <laughs> it's, uh, it's extremely helpful to know what the Buddha said, you know. <laughs> he said like this, Uh, I'll shorten it. If you know something that can be helpful to people and it's true, find the right time to say it. And the right time to say it needs to include a total lack of animosity in oneself, in the speaker, loving, love and compassion for the listener, and it includes the wish of the other person to listen. It includes that also, the right time. If the other person doesn't want to hear it, it's a waste of time and energy. They don't want to hear it, what, why force it? On the contrary, as you have already noticed yourself, it creates a certain animosity in the other people, even if it's only irritation. And that's probably what it is, it's irritation. They're getting irritated by something they don't want to hear. So it's obviously not the right time. The whole formula goes like this. If you know anything that can be hurtful and is untrue, don't say it. If you know anything that is helpful and untrue, don't say it. If you know anything that's hurtful or could be hurtful and true, don't say it. If you know anything that is helpful and true, find the right time. Now again, purpose, suitability. Again, the result if it really 
the within my pathway of Dhamma and then the last one, the non-delusion. So we, we can use that in all our speech and constantly check it. Naturally, we will forget. But the more often we remember it, the more of a chance we have to change the habit. And in the end, one is a changed person. One's changed one's habits. Anything else? Yeah. I've noticed that sometimes to go to a movie uh, puts you in a situation uh, that you don't have usually in your life, and then you can observe your reaction or your emotion or something like that. So the Buddha does not, did not approve, well, movies did not exist in his time, of the theater. He did not approve of it. He said, people are so deluded, they don't need any more. It is make-believe. And he said, we live in a make-believe world anyway. And it's not the right way to have more of that. So if you are seeing yourself in a situation which you otherwise would not experience in that movie, it's nothing but a thought process. Because you haven't experienced it. You're not experiencing it. It's not yours. It's those people. And if it's a horrible situation, you're mighty grateful it's theirs and not yours. All that comes into it. It's make-believe. Now if it shows something... um, that oneself has experienced, one may be able, able to have empathy and maybe practice that, but it's still unreal. I have to go back a long time. I haven't been to a movie in a long time. Hmm? But, but sometimes theater, uh, uh, which didn't exist in the Buddha's time, like Shakespeare and Lear and the really great pieces that geniuses of that nature have written do purvey universal truths and seeing them mm. have enlightened to a degree many people's minds because they've brought their minds to really great truths in their own lives. Yeah, well he did he did mention those too. There in those days there was no Shakespeare of course, but there were uh, Dhamma performances. They were performing Dhamma with a visual teaching aid if it's a visual teaching aid yes but we can make any justification for anything I've seen one Buddhist film this year and that was The Bad Poet Society The what? The Bad Poet Society and that was really the Buddhist film yeah I still haven't understood the title The Dead Poet Society Dead Poet oh anybody saw that film? yeah well, it's possible, you see. He did have the visual aid, uh, visual teaching aid. That's possible. But theater as such, um, actually being an actor, he said, was wrong livelihood. Because it, um, it, um, you try to be what you're not. So um, he, he considered that wrong livelihood. Not only that, but he tried, what he said, that if you are do that, you're trying to purvey to the people um, emotions which they're not having. So they're not examining their own emotions, their own thing. They're purveying something to them of that nature. But they did have Dhamma performance like um, visual teaching it, and particularly uh, interesting 
um, later, this was quite prevalent in Tibet, Dhamma performances. But he did it also, he also had it. So there's a um, difference between the one and the other, but um, it's, it's a possibility that some of them will pervade something which is a learning situation, if one can learn something. But if it's just an ordinary movie, it's highly unlikely. You know, it has to be really something special. But anyway, people go to movies anyway. Watch television. Hmm? What is the best way to cope in one's own household with someone who feels that the news and things like that are informative? And when you share a house with someone who really believes in being informed by television, perhaps because they work in television too, what's the best way to mm. come up with for someone who's trying to practice to cope with that? Oh, well, just let him be informed. You don't have to sit there and watch it yourself. And if he then wants to tell you about it, that's all right. Uh, I think the visual impact, um, that's how anyway I experienced like that. I haven't seen television in I don't know how long. And then I turned it on in, in Melbourne and it was ghastly. I think the visual impact is um, of the greatest uh, detrimental effect. If he then wants to tell you what he saw or something like that, or what he heard, more likely, so let that person do whatever they think. Hmm. We don't have to look at it, though. It's at least something. We don't have to look at it. It looks ghastly, and it really upsets the mind. It really gets the mind going on the totally wrong track. Totally. I mean, the words are bad enough too but the visual impact makes it twice as bad. So the other person, yes, they have to do their thing, whatever it is. Not hiding from the truth not to want to see. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, we've got enough hate already in us. We don't have to add to it. It's nothing but a visual impact of hate, that's all it is. That's all it is. We've got enough of that. Everybody. We're all contributing towards it because we haven't got complete peace. Uh, from my own point of view, I found in the same situation that it helps very much if you really believe that what you're seeing on the television is such a subjective thing. Most people are totally convinced that even what they're watching is at least the truth. But when you realize that one man, or maybe two women, or three men, have chosen from all over the world all of the things that there are to choose from, they have chosen that to bring to you to look at, then it just seems even more ridiculous to sit and watch it, because um, you're watching what they've chosen to put into your mind. That's right. When you know sometimes what they've left out as well. Well, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the, uh, this is quite true what you're saying, but my uh, concern in this matter is that our minds are impure, and that means that we have not got in touch with the purity of original mind, and the more we put rubbish on it, the less we will have a chance to get in touch with it. And our only reason for being here as a human being is to get in touch with it. There's no other reason. Everything else is by the way. We've got to do it, the by the way things. But they're only by the way. So if we don't protect our mind 
the best possible way from all this rubbish from outside, like eating poisonous food, we are protecting our body from eating poisonous food. We wouldn't eat anything dirty. When we see dirt on our plate, we'd get a new plate of food. So it's by much more important to watch the input into the mind so that eventually we ourselves can let go of all these views and ideas that we have so that we can get in touch with this completely pure and um, connected consciousness which doesn't have that person of any um, likes or dislikes in it. So we ha- that is, in my feeling, the most important reason for not watching what these few people have chosen because their minds have chosen what they think is going to get most, be most exciting. So we excite the mind even more than it is already excited. We, if we don't watch our minds and protect it, we'll never get to that point where we can actually have the kind of mind that the whole practice is aimed at. A mind which doesn't have this personal um, entity viewpoint in it. So that is, a, I think, very important. And you could say that, uh, but it may create uh, uh, animosity because you obviously the other person then is implied in it that he or she is not protecting their mind. But for yourself you can use that. And um, it's quite in line with what Brian is saying because, I mean, these people are obviously choosing something that is not going to purify, <laughs> but <laughs> just the opposite. <laughs> yes, Margaret. Hi, is there only one person in your household so it would be a few at a time. No, anyway. Well, for $21 you can get earphones, which I did with my little mum, and she puts them on and listens as long as I don't have to hear it. Not everybody is, is willing to do that. Some people may. It's an implication of what you're doing is wrong. It implies something. It's, an, it's an, uh, a judgment implication in it. You may not wish to have that judgment implication, but it certainly, it can be construed to have that. So it's uh, not always possible to do that. And maybe in your case, not possible. (laughs) 